0: You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. Scripture reading this morning is Daniel 1, verses 6 and 7. Now, now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Uh, Meshach and to Azariah Abednego You may be seated I kind of feel like I should be the one Repenting for causing A brother to have to read all those names (laughs) I was like that would be a good verse to have Read and I, well Names Good to have you all with us from Illinois Correct okay two hour drive somebody said Is that right now that's what you call Devotion they got here on time and they Had two hours to get here Uh, we'll just leave it at that. How about that? Well, today we're hosting Bible Bowl and uh, several congregations with their youth will be here. And I know a lot of people here have put a lot into this day and just, I'm not going to start naming names because then I'd leave seven out and I don't want to get in that kind of trouble. But for everybody who has had a hand in it, thank you very much. Uh, I know Whitney put all this up here. And It's pretty neat. Uh, I told her I'll give her my sermon ahead of time and we'll have a new backdrop come next week. I figure y'all might like something to look at other than my ugly mug. Well, um, no amens necessary. I really like the story of Daniel because I think there's some good parallels for Christians today. Um, But I want you to think, let's just kind of paint the picture as to where we are. You are, say, one of the friends of Daniel, and you're likely around, by the time of the first chapter, many scholars think they were about 14 to 15 years old. Okay, so we're not talking about grown men, we're talking about youths. And here they are in a foreign land. They don't know anybody other than their own, and many of their own may still be back in Jerusalem, they may be dead, and it's just a, it's a horrible state. Well, out of all that, then you have these four young guys who are, as you look at the first chapter, they are from the aristocracy, king's descendants, some of the nobles, young men, in whom there is no blemish, uh, but gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand. Uh, so they're going to, they're going to be put in a position to where they have to Learn a different culture They've already been given different names and they're going to be forced to assimilate But one thing that I want to point out because it seems like Christians are always in some kind of a cultural war Whether it's right or not. It's uh, I I tend to be optimistic about everything For the most part Except when I haven't had my coffee yet, then I can be negative about a lot of things But I try to be optimistic overall No matter how bad things look Because Jesus rose from the grave I mean What more do we need But anyway What I notice is that at every turn When demands are made of uh, Of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael And Azariah they, They never respond hatefully Daniel In chapter 1 verse 8 When it comes to this diet He requests that he not eat this food Then when Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah refuse to worship uh, the image. And they're going to be cast into the fiery furnace. They don't respond hatefully to the king, but they're very matter-of-fact, speaking in faith, and they they plead their cause. And Daniel also, when he's spared from the lion's den, he doesn't go, Ha-ha, told you my God is powerful enough, but rather... He speaks respectfully to the king. There's a proverb that really I try to keep in mind uh, in most cases. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. When someone is hateful to you, it's always easy to respond hatefully. Um, Usually what I try to do is just walk away. You know, it's not because I'm afraid of conflict, it's just because I know if if I stay there in that moment, it's not going to be good what comes out. And so I really admire these four guys and what they face. They were in Babylon, and maybe for you, Babylon is the workplace. Babylon could be school. It may even be your own home. You're trying to live a life faithful to God, but you have surroundings and circumstances that often challenge that very thing. And maybe you do a good job in the face of it. Maybe sometimes you don't. But whatever it is, probably most of us, if not all of us, we face a Babylon just like what they face. Some place that wants to take our identity, that wants to take our values and to make us in their image rather than how we're supposed to be made. And, you know, it's easy to not be like Jesus to be like Jesus sometimes can be challenging because it means denying myself and how I naturally want to reply and another passage that just slaps me upside the face every time I read it no man can tame the tongue it's an unruly evil full of deadly poison and with it we bless our God and Father which we've been doing here in the assembly we've been blessing our God and Father in song and in prayer but then with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God, or the similitude. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. This is one I'm guilty of. And I dare say, as I have observed some of you at basketball games, you too, or soccer games, Johnny Miller, who's a referee, has not received the blessings but the cursings all over again. Okay. So throughout Daniel, and, and I, look, when I was taking my uh, doctorate studies and was about to nail down what I was going to write my dissertation about, my, my advisor, he says, whatever you do, make sure it's a topic you're interested in, that you love, because by the time you're done, you're not going to love it anymore. And I, it may be that, that Daniel has been a part of your life so much that you're like, man, I'd just be glad to get it all behind. But hopefully, in the study that has been given to Daniel... Uh, you find a blessing and something to carry with you. So the first lesson that I'd point out from the book of Daniel is, number one, for the Christian, do not compromise. If you're unable to see this, I'm going to be reading from Daniel 1, verses 3 through 8, some of which I've already read, speaking about the fact that these are guys of royal descent, of nobility, young men in whom there's no blemish but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing all knowledge and quick to understand, who has the ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Verse five, and the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of the time they might stand before the king. Now, you pause there, there it is. We're going to educate these guys in our ways, in our language. And the next couple of verses that follow after this is when they give them new names. So 14, 15-year-old guys who are of noble birth from Jerusalem, they're going to go and complete a bachelor's degree in Babylon in three months. They don't get their summers off. Then at the end of that time, they'll stand before the king and do whatever he bids. But here's the thing, we, we would think, man, this is kind of a bad situation, but it seems, I mean, the king's feeding them from his own table. But look at verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart that he wouldn't defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, if we understand why he found this concerning, then we could probably understand his point of view. He didn't want to eat or drink from the king's table because meat wasn't a staple in the ancient world. The only time meat was eaten was when the animal had been sacrificed to a god. And so for them to take this meat from the king's table was to them to participate in that idolatry. Sometimes the wine was poured as an oblation of some sort. So it's not just simple as, I don't want to eat your food. It's, it's more of, if I eat this food, I'll defile myself. And so Daniel purposed in his heart that he wouldn't do this. And so he doesn't demand or become contentious about it. He just simply requests that he not do this or that he not eat of the king's portions. Now, this creates a whole issue because the guy who's bringing it to him, he's like, look, if, if I don't bring you this, I'm going to be the one getting in trouble with the king. And so he says, look, give us vegetables and what, you know, for a period of what, so many days. And at the end of that time, examine us and see whether or not if our complexion looks better than theirs or, and, and that's how it turned out. But you know, a lot of times when it comes to living in faith, we, we go, That's ah, just a meal. What does it really matter? We downplay stuff so that we can justify what it is we want to do. And you could say, I'm in a foreign land, when in Rome, do as the Romans but here they are Jewish in a foreign land and here comes their meal and they could have very easily said "Ah, it's just food I mean of all the commandments that God has given us through his law surely he would want us to not upset the apple cart that's how we reason today It's just, it's so small. But when we're faithful in the small things, then we're faithful in the bigger things. There's a book called Eric Says Thank You. And young Eric has breakfast of toast one day and he says thanks to his mom. And so his mom says, I'm not the only one who provides. And she starts listing how they get their food. And so Eric goes from there and uh, he thanks the person behind mom. He goes to the baker and thanks the baker. He goes to the delivery driver, to the miller, and eventually to the farmer who grows the wheat. And the farmer tells Eric that the person he needs to be thanking is God because he's the one who brings the rain and makes the grain grow. God is faithful to us and things that we would consider very little, surely we can be that way with regard to Him. No compromise. Putting your foot down. Finally standing for something. If there's no greater cause or person to stand for than God and our Christian faith, what is? What is? What is? you might tuck your toes in because someone's gonna say that I stepped on their toes but I'd rather you know that it's not the toes I'm aiming at it's the heart when I was in high school it was unfathomable that we would have ever played a game or practice on a Wednesday or a Sunday everybody knew that's when you went to church but as Christians have become more secular, okay, that's been thrown out. And we have games on Wednesdays and Sundays. And there's nothing wrong with that. As long as the Christian who is playing those games doesn't sacrifice God on the altar of their recreation. And the thing is, sadly, some have but they don't want to admit it. Well, for ball season, you know, here's what we're going to do. For us, it was, you know, hunting and fishing. But Dad was always sure to make sure that we went and worshipped with the brethren on Sunday. So sometimes that meant during fishing season, he'd pull the boat to church, and then as soon as we had worshipped the Lord, we'd go and we'd drive right out to the lake. When it was deer season, we'd go hunting on Sunday mornings. And we'd try to go home and change before church. And I remember one particular Sunday. It it was my the last juvenile hunt I was able to go on, and I got me an eight point buck, beautiful deer, hanging up in my house. So if you ever want to see, holler at me. You can come by. He had a 21 inch spread. I could fit my torso in between that. But it was Sunday morning, and we killed the buck. And guess what? For whatever reason, we had to go deep into the woods to the perfect hunting spot. And it was always downhill. So that when you kill a buck or a deer of any kind, you gotta drag it uphill. You see, some people have their full wheelers and their little tractors. My dad, he had me. So you don't need a full wheeler or a tractor or anything to get back down in there. You've got a 17-year-old boy who needs to work out. And dad said, My shoulder, I can't, you know. So he would, you know, field dress it there in the woods. And and by the time I drug that thing up and we got it loaded in the truck. Eyes wore out, we were going to make it home to change for church. So we drove straight to church, and here we come walking in in camouflage. Say what you will, but Daddy made a point that we were worshiping on Sunday. And, you know, that's never left me. Because he could have very well easily said, Well, you know, it's a beautiful day, let's fish, let's hunt, you know, whatever. And that would have given me the lesson that, oh, yeah, well, you know, the things that I love, I can do those. And if I have time, I can fit God in. But that wasn't how it was. Because there was, at least at this period in our life, no compromise. Okay, first lesson, no compromise. Second lesson, trust God no matter what. Not very profound lessons, are they? But, But listen to this. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. Now, what had led up to this is there had been this idol created, and at certain times when all the the instruments were played, everybody was supposed to worship the idol. uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah didn't. You know, have you ever noticed this? We always call Daniel Daniel, but often the other Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We don't call them by their Jewish names. I, I caught myself doing that. Anyway, so they're being confronted about this, and the king asked them, who is the God who can save you from my hand? Well, if that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us from your hand, O king. Now, here's where the faith comes in. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Paul says we walk by faith and not by sight. They didn't know if God would deliver them or not. And sometimes we treat our relationship with God as transactional. God, if you do this for me, I will do this in return. But these guys said God is able to do it, but if He doesn't, we're still not going to worship that image. That's trusting God no matter what. Not when I know the outcome is to my advantage, but it's when I have no clue on earth how it could turn out. Tim Hansel tells a story. He says, one day while my son Zach and I were out in the country, climbing around in some cliffs, I heard a voice above me yell, hey dad, catch me. And I turned around and there he was midair. And I caught him and we fell backwards backwards. And when I finally found my voice again, I gasped. I said, "Zach, can you give me one good reason why you did that?" He responded remarkably with calmness. Sure, because you're my dad. I see the dad's point of view, right? Because you're climbing on some rocks and cliffs or whatever with your kid, and your kid hollers, "Hey, dad!" and you turn around and midair poof, knocks you back and everything. You. get a little irritated, but when you hear the son's perspective, why did you do that? Because you're my dad. I trust you. I knew you'd catch me. I think that's the kind of faith illustrated here. I trust in God. The fiery furnace doesn't scare me. The angry king doesn't scare me. Being ostracized doesn't scare me because I know my father will catch me. Okay, so don't compromise. Trust God no matter what. And here's the final one. Practice your religion regardless of the cost. Now, in Daniel chapter 6, there's a great passage that starts out this verse, or or, or this lesson. It's verse 5 of Daniel 6. Excuse me. And I love the way it's worded. These guys are jealous of Daniel. He's, he's, you know, risen through the ranks, been given all these privileges. And they're trying to find some charge or fault with him. But they can't. Everything he does in the kingdom, he does with integrity. All of his accounts balance. No money is being laundered. He's not doing anything dishonest. And so verse 5, they said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Here's another way that I like to ask the question based on this verse. Essentially, they're going to find him guilty of being faithful to the Lord, faithful to that law. If an attorney had to build a case against me, is there enough evidence to prove that I'm a Christian? Because that was all they had against Daniel. If a case was built against me, is there enough evidence to prove me guilty of being a Christian? Okay, so verse 7. We'll skip ahead a couple of verses here. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now look at verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since early days. Talk about guts. As soon as he knew the law was signed, he goes immediately and prays, knowing full well what the consequence could be. The only way we remain faithful is consistency. Um, I remember when I was a freshman in high school and we were doing uh, baseball exercises and and I was talking to Rob about this a few weeks ago. (sighs) I didn't know that there were muscles in certain areas that they would make us work out. You know, you'd have a guy standing, say, right here and one standing there, and you had to do almost like a sumo squat and you had to go side to side, and when you'd hit that guy's foot, then you'd hit, go back and forth. And you'd wake up the next morning like a newborn deer, your legs shaking, and you barely not able to walk. But consistency, and what was, what was the purpose of that drill? Someone hits a ground ball, you sumo squat, and you move right to the side to catch that thing. That's why we were doing that. Well, Mary Lou Redden, she says, here's what it takes to be a complete gymnast. Someone should be able to sneak up and drag you out at midnight, push you out on some strange floor, and you should be able to do your entire routine sound asleep in your pajamas without one mistake. That's the secret. It's got to be a natural reaction. The law was signed. Daniel goes up to his upper room and he prays, as was his custom since early days. It was easy for him to still do it because he'd always been doing it. You know, whenever someone prays and a person says, you sure pray a nice prayer, you ought to reply, thanks, I practice often. Because it's true. A person that prays often is a person that knows how to pray. And Daniel, I mean, this was only for 30 days that this law was in effect. 30, one month. He could have easily said, "Ah, I kind of want to not be eaten by lions. Doesn't sound like it's in my best interest. So I think what I'll do is, for 30 days, I cannot pray. God will understand. He knows the circumstance. He knows my heart. That's what people often use as an excuse for something. He knows my heart. My reply is, and that should scare you. He knows my heart, right? And it, 30 days, I won't pray for 30 days. It'll be good. God knows. It's, it's Daniel said, nope. I will practice my religion regardless of the cost. And he did. And as we know the story, Daniel was thrown into the den of lions. And what happened? Nothing. The Lord shut the mouths of the lions. So Babylon is vying for Daniel, Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah's loyalty. Babylon is vying for them to identify no longer as Jews, but as Babylonians, as Chaldeans. And their forces always vying for your loyalty and for mine. In the 1820s, up in Georgetown, Kentucky, specifically at Great Crossings, uh, there was a school uh, built. It's called the Choctaw Academy. And Native Americans, Indians from various tribes, would send their children there. To be educated. And the place is still up there, it's just not well known. And, uh, well, anyway, when the Indian boys came to that school, they often got a haircut, and they would be given a name different from what their tribe had named them. And I found the records of this, actually a friend shared it. There was one 12-year-old boy named Elatabi. Now, when you translate that name, it means we come to kill. Okay, I probably understand why they wanted to change his name. But Elatabi, we come to kill. They changed his name to Samuel Cornelius. Could you imagine this little fella going around? What's your name, Samuel Cornelius? You don't look like a Samuel Cornelius, right? Then there was an 18-year-old boy. His name was Okolumbi. It was changed to Samuel Worcester. Remember that Worcestershire sauce that nobody can pronounce? That is Worcester. That's, that's how they say it over there, at least. His name, Okolumbi, means many killed. So, okay, yeah. We, we could probably see why uh, they changed the name. So, I like visuals, maybe you will too. So, the top left corner is a picture of me, my grandfather, and my grandmother. Now, you can tell my grandmother's very, very dark complexed. She is Choctaw, 100%. The picture to the right, that's her on the far left, and on the far right of that picture is her mother, my great-grandmother, Alice. Uh, her maiden name, my grandmother's maiden name was Tubby, T-U-B-B-Y, and I'm thinking, what kind of Indian name is that? People go, what's, what's, what's your family's name? It's nothing like kicking bird or as my wife, if she was given a name, be shops with a fist. I don't know. You know, we don't have any cool Indian names like that. Tubby. I'm like, oh, we got the short end of the stick. Why? What? It's kind of like what you're right. When people say Vladimir Putin, the kids that you know, they laugh because his name. You know, okay, I don't have to explain that. Well, Tubby. Uh, you know, did a little bit of, of genealogical research and my great-great-grandfather, he spelled it differently, Simpson, T-U-B-B-E-E. And I'm sitting there going, okay, so some white guy probably heard that name and was like, Tubby, T-U-B-B, <laughs> Tubby, looks it, you know, well, it's T-U-B-B-E. And, and when you keep going back in history, you come to my fifth great-grandfather, Mushala Tubby. His name means determined to kill. Got great family, I promise. They love people. But no, he was given that name when he was a war chief because he led raids against the Osage. And he was given this name, Musha Latubby. So, tubby in Choctaw means to kill. So I'm like, okay, that's a lot better than just tubby, right? You know, that's what I always thought. So I found the, uh, the lineage, and you get Musha Latubby, then Alec Tubby, Lewis, that's where it changes, Simpson, McKinley, my great grandfather, my grandmother, dad, and me. And I go, look at the changes. And when you read that American history, you understand through all the Indian schools what they were doing. Uh, One very infamous slogan was, kill the Indian, save the man. And so there was, just like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, forced assimilation. And we're going to face the same as Christians. But the thing is, they couldn't resist as easily as we can. We don't have to assimilate to anything but to the way of the kingdom of God. Because when we profess our faith in Jesus... And when we are buried with the Lord in baptism, we become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we grow adding, or rather assimilating to that nation. I'll finish when I'm ready. I don't know who's back there buzzing that thing. Anyway, and I'm about done, so just hang on. Uh, So when we confess Christ as our Lord and when we are baptized, we become citizens of the kingdom of heaven and it's to that nation that we are to assimilate. And one of the ways we do that is by putting on the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if we find ourselves in Babylon, we don't need to let Babylon rub off on us because Jesus said that his disciples were the salt of the earth his disciples are the light of the world if anything we're to rub off on our environment and on others maintaining fidelity to Christ so if you've not left Babylon come out from her become a Christian as I've said you can if you have faith that Jesus is God's son Be willing to confess your faith, repent of your sins, and be buried with Jesus in baptism. Dear Christian, if you've become too comfortable in Babylon, just leave. Repent and ask for the Lord's forgiveness and it will be given. If we can assist anyone or serve anyone in any of these needs, just make your way to the front while we stand and sing.